Man, please be seated. Three years ago, uh, my faith was shaken, and uh, the evangelical world was shocked when a man, a pastor, and best-selling author named uh, Joshua Harris said that he had, quote, undergone a massive shift in regard to my faith in Jesus. Harris walked away from his Christian faith. And it especially hit home to me because I followed Harris's ministry. I was impacted um, by his ministry, by his books, uh, by his teaching. I even promoted some of them. I benefited, benefited from him and his ministry. And it's really sad. Uh, really sad. I've heard interviews with him since he's walked away. And as far as I know, he is still um, not following Jesus. And I pray he returns. I pray he comes back. But the question I want to know is this, what happened? What happened to Joshua Harris, a man who preached God's word week in and week out, a man who knows the gospel through and through, who can articulate it very clearly and precisely? What happened to him? And, and not only him, but literally countless thousands of, of men and women who at one time profess the faith. At one time they say, yeah, I'm a believer, I'm a follower of Jesus, and they walk away. You ever want to know what happened to them? What happened that they could be this great man in Harris's case, this great man of God, and walk away? Well, I think our text this morning gives us some insight into what happened with Harris and many others. So why don't you open there with me. 1 Timothy, if you're not there already. We're going to focus on verses 8 through 20 of chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. It's page 1187, if you need the page number. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. Let me read these verses again for us. Paul writing here, obviously, to Timothy, his missionary companion, and he says this, This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, with with great affection, he calls him his son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, Keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. And then he goes on to name a few of these men. Among these are Hymenius 
and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they would be taught not to blaspheme. So if you remember from prior sermons in this book, uh, this letter was written to the church that was in Ephesus. And the church was undergoing um, some attack. And particularly here in this church, uh, the attack that the church was experiencing was from the inside. There was these false teachers that had arisen from within the church. And they were, they were literally destroying the church from the inside out. And in the face of, of this attack, Paul sends his missionary companion, his son, his true son, his beloved son in the faith. He sends him or he leaves him in Ephesus to deal with some of the problems that are in this church. And he calls Timothy to this difficult but necessary task. It's a difficult task, but it is very necessary. And here's what he calls Timothy to do. He calls Timothy, Timothy, I want you to persevere by keeping faith and a good conscience. That's what I'm calling you to do, Timothy. Keep the faith and a good conscience. And this call from Paul to Timothy is is specifically made to Timothy, right? But we can apply the principle here that we see in God's Word. You see, the Church of Jesus Christ, Grace Community Bible Church, we are to be formed, fashioned, shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? That's what we're called to be. We're called to be shaped by the gospel. In fact, the whole book of 1 Timothy, as we saw, especially in the first sermon, it's written to show us what a gospel-shaped church looks like. What does it really look like to be shaped by the gospel? We, we come here, we gather, we profess the name of Jesus, we, we follow him, but what does it mean for us as a body to be shaped by that gospel that we profess, that we love? And that's why the book of 1 Timothy was written. It was written to show us This It was written to show us what the gospel does in our lives. The gospel is the great power of God. Not only for getting us into the faith, bringing us into Christianity, it is the power of God to keep us in the faith. It is the power of God that we need every day of our lives. As we walk and as we follow Jesus. The gospel is not just good news to get into the Christian faith. The gospel is good news to stay in the Christian faith. That's what the gospel does. That is the power of the gospel for salvation. And here is where the gospel sort of shapes the church that we find in our text 
this morning, the principle, the main idea that we want to get from this passage. So here it is. Here's what we see, this big idea from this text. And here it is. The gospel shapes the church. The gospel, we could say, shapes the Christian to persevere by keeping faith and a good conscience in the context of local church membership. All right, now that's a mouthful, so let me unpack that, and then we're going to unpack that as we walk through this text. Now, as I set this up, I want to I kind of go big picture here. So I want to step back from this text, as it were, a little bit, and I, wanna lo- I want us to look at the forest before we dive into the tree called 1 Timothy 1, verses 18 through 20. Okay, So I want to step back and I want to tell you that the Christian life is a life of tension. It really is. It's, it's, the Christian life is like a rubber band, bound and, and, and has tension on both sides. And if, if you let one side go, it's going to fling off. Right? That's what the Christian life is. It's, it's bound by tension. And here is the tension. You got to understand this. On the one hand, God holds true Christians in his hands. God holds you in your hands. If you are a believer, a true believer, God is holding you in his hand by his power. He's not going to let you go. We sing the song. He will hold us fast. It's what we're proclaiming when we sing that song. True Christians will, and I'll put it like this, true Christians will finally and forever be preserved by the power and grace of God. That's one side of the tension. The other side of the tension is that God calls true Christians, to use Paul's language here, to fight the good fight. We are called to war, to love the captive soul, and to wage against the captor, as we just sang. That's our call. Simply, Christians, if you're a Christian, you're called to persevere in the faith. So on the one hand, God will preserve true believers until the end. Amen? I mean, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God will preserve you until the end. He will not let you go. That is is the comfort that we find in the gospel. But on the other hand, true believers will and must persevere until the end. That is the command of the gospel. So the Bible does not teach that you can lose your salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. 
But neither does the Bible teach that once you are saved, you are always saved no matter how you live. Doesn't teach that at all. Right? The truth is is this tension. Listen, I want you to listen to how Peter uh, explains how he describes this tension in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. Just listen. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. He says that true Christians are protected by the power of God. So, so if you're a Christian, you're protected by the power of God, but there's a way in which that happens, and it's, he says it's through faith. It's through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So there's the tension. God preserves, we persevere. Let me put it like this, just in a nutshell. God causes true believers to persevere. God causes true believers to persevere. That's the best way I know how to say this truth, putting this, these tensions together. God causes true believers to persevere. Let me use an illustration that, that helps me that I think you can relate to. So when, when, uh, when my kids were younger... Uh, they used to love to get on my back and I would give them a, a horsey ride, right? And they would, they would jump on my back and daddy give me a horsey ride and I would tell them, okay, I'm going to give you a horsey ride, but you need to hang on to me with all your might. So here's my child, they're on my back, they're hanging on to me with all their might, but at the same time, while I'm bucking and trying to throw them off, at the same time, I sort of have my arm behind me hanging on to them. That is a picture of what is happening. We are, we are persevering in the faith. That is, we are holding on to Jesus Christ with all of our might. And yet, and yet what we realize is that God is holding on to us as well. He has a hold on us. So all the times in life that we're bucked off our course, as it were, God still has a hold on us. Now with all of that said, we're in a better position to understand what Paul is saying here to Timothy. Why he's writing these words to him. right? And here in this passage, what we see is we see our call, our responsibility. This is not a text that shows us God's responsibility. It's not a text that shows us what God is doing in this tension. Are you following me? This passage is a passage that shows us our call in this call to persevere in the faith. So we are, as verse 18 puts it, look at it with me. We are to, at the very end of verse 18, we are to fight the good fight. Now, we instinctively understand what that means, right? What is Paul saying here? This is a metaphor. Fighting is a metaphor for what? It's a metaphor for perseverance. In fact, 
In fact, Paul uses this same metaphor in the next book that he writes to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, right before he is about to die. And do you remember what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2 or chapter 4, verse 7? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. Just, just listen. Paul's about to die. He knows it. And what does he tell Timothy? He says, I have fought the good fight. And then he uses another, another metaphor. I have finished my course. And what does he mean by that? He tells us in the next line, I have kept the faith. So he's using this metaphor of fighting as a metaphor for persevering, for keeping the faith. And I think we get that and we understand it. So here's what I want to do this morning. I want to answer really sort of three questions, and they're on your handout if you want to follow along or look at those questions. Three questions that sort of arise from this text that we can learn about our call to fight the good fight. The first question is this. How do we fight the good fight? How do we do it? How do we, in other words, not end up like Joshua Harris and walk away from the faith? Well, the answer is given in verse 19. So let's again start in verse 18. Let's look at 18. This command, right? So what is this command? It's referring back to verse 3 when Paul gave this command to Timothy to go confront these false teachers in their teaching. This command I entrust you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. So that's just talking about those prophecies are, are Timothy's call, the call of God on Timothy's life. By them, he says, you, what do you do, Timothy? You fight the good fight. And here's how. Here's how. Keeping faith and a good conscience. And he goes on to say, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. So here's how we could summarize this. How do we fight the good fight? We could say it like this. We persevere for faith. And we persevere by conscience. How do we fight? How do we persevere? We persevere by faith or for faith. And we persevere by conscience. This is why I say a gospel-shaped church, a gospel-shaped Christian, perseveres by keeping faith and a good conscience in the context of local church membership. Now we're going to, again, we're going to unpack all of that. But let's look first of all at this idea in verse 19 of keeping faith. Keeping faith at the beginning of verse 19. Paul tells us, he tells Timothy, and by extension he tells us, that we are to fight, we are to keep the faith. Now faith used here is not a reference to our personal faith. It is a reference to the faith. As in, the faith once for all handed down to the saints. That faith. 
In other words, the faith here that Paul is talking about is the good news. It's the gospel. It's, It's all that Jesus has done, his person and work. So we are called to keep the faith. We are called to, uh, in, in Jude, as Jude says it, to contend for the faith. We're called to contend for the faith without being contentious. We're called to contend. And if you are a Christian, you are called to contend. You are called to hold on to the great deposit of the faith. The faith that is once for all handed down to the saints. It's typically said that in a seminary uh, environment, in a seminary setting, that uh, the church history professors are usually the last ones to go apostate, to abandon the faith, to walk away from the faith. Right? Why is that? Why is that sort of the running joke? Well, it's because the church history guys are constantly reading history. They're constantly steeped in the faith. The faith once for all handed down to the saints. And so may we, brothers and sisters, may we as Grace Community Bible Church, may we have the spirit of the hymn. The hymn that says this. Perhaps you've sang this hymn before. I love to tell the story. For those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song, what will it be? It will be the old, old story that I have loved so long. And then the chorus, I love to tell the story, will be my theme in glory. To tell the old, old story of Jesus and his love. I never want to move past the truth of the gospel. I never want to get tired of hearing the story of Jesus and his love. I want to keep the faith. The faith, the gospel, it is what Jesus has done. It's objective. It can't be changed. It's this truth that we cling to. But the gospel must be applied to your life. It must be applied to my life. You know, if you win the lottery, that's great, but it means nothing unless you go and claim the prize. We must apply the gospel must be applied to our life christianity is always an objective and subjective element there's always that to christianity the objective content the message of the gospel and what jesus has done and then how his work is applied to our life how it is impacted our life specifically how the gospel impacts you in your heart, specifically how the gospel has pricked your heart, how it has pricked your conscience. And that's why Paul tells Timothy here, keeping faith and, and a good conscience. So what is the conscience? The conscience is that moral faculty that you have inside of you that tells you right 
or wrong. It tells you what is right. It tells you what is wrong. And, and all people are born with a conscience, and, and our conscience is shaped over time. And here's the important element. Here's the important element for our passage this morning. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, your conscience needs to be formed by the Scripture. It needs to be, it needs to be in line with the Scripture. Sometimes it is in line with the Scripture, your conscience is, and sometimes it is not in line with the Scripture. But in all instances, here's the thing. Here's what the Bible says. You are to never go against your conscience. Whatever your conscience is telling you, you are to never to go against your conscience. You're never to violate your conscience. Because when you do, you no longer have a good conscience. You have, as Paul says here, a good conscience. You have a bad conscience. And there's other adjectives the Bible uses about what we can do to our conscience, violating it and searing it, right? But you, in essence, have a bad conscience, an evil conscience, when you go against it. Let me give you a silly example. A silly example of what I mean by this. Let's say that, that, that I thought my conscience told me that it's wrong for me to wear the color pink. Right? Now, I really don't believe that. My conscience does not tell me that. But let's say that's what my conscience told me. If I were to wear pink, right, I would be in violation of my conscience. That would be sin for me in that moment. And in that moment, my conscience would no longer be good. It would be bad. The point is not whether it's right or wrong to wear pink. The point is, is that I'm violating my conscience. I'm going against it. Now, here's why this matters. Here's why all this matters for our passage this morning. And it matters a great deal because John Calvin insightfully said this as I was reading him. He says this, quote, a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. A bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. His point is that usually people abandon the faith not over intellectual issues, but over moral issues. Over conscience issues. It happens slowly. You push the line with your conscience just a little and a little and a little until you have completely abandoned what you know to be right and wrong. And when you do that, you look back and you've abandoned the faith. You've abandoned Christianity. This is, brothers and sisters, this is how it works for many people who have walked away from Jesus. I have seen this. You have seen this. What happens, typically what happens, and it doesn't always have to look like this, but this is typically what happens. A young person claims to follow Jesus. They go off to college And they're exposed to a world in which they never knew when they were at home. 
and they're exposed to everything out there, all the good and all the bad. And sometimes, sometimes, by God's grace, some of them escape college unharmed. Others do not. And this is why we hear about so many young people walking away from the faith in college. They walk away because they start to to violate their conscience. Their conscience starts to become bad. It is no longer a good conscience. And if they escape, then what happens typically, and I've seen this, is they, they start to work and they start to make good money and then they start to buy cars and houses and toys and they start to gain notoriety and success. And before you know it, before you know it, they look back and they realize, I haven't been to church since my college days. And they have completely walked away from the faith. Jesus is no longer a part of their life. It is, it is the slow fade It's the slow fade because of a bad conscience. So what Paul is telling us here, he's telling us that our beliefs, the gospel truth that we hold, and our behavior, our beliefs and our behavior matter. Or we can say our convictions and our conscience matter. We must fight For faith, we must fight by keeping a good conscience. If not, we are in danger of walking away. We are in danger of walking away from the faith. But this is how we persevere. We persevere by keeping faith and a good conscience. Unfortunately, As we see in this text, and as we know all by experience, there are those who do fall away. Ex-evangelicals now is the term that is used. Ex-evangelicals is not new, right? It's always happened. Maybe the term is new. I think in our world, we know more about them because of social media, Right? Someone can walk away from the faith and they can broadcast it to everyone on social media and what they have done and their, their sort of um, deconstruction of their life and of the faith. But when we don't keep the faith in a good conscience, what happens? Look what Paul says. He says in verse 19, keeping faith in a good conscience, and some didn't do that, and some, what does he say, have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Now, notice what he says here. Notice he says that we reject, and what are we rejecting? We're rejecting the faith, and when we reject the faith and have a bad conscience, we reject not just the faith, but we suffer shipwreck our faith, your faith personal faith. And this was this case with these men, Hymenius and Alexander. Now, how are we to understand this? How are we to understand these two men, Hymenius and Alexander? Right? They've, 
they've rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. How are we to understand what happened to these men? Well, given what I said earlier, I'll just call them Jaime and Alex. Right? If Jaime and Alex were true believers, and here's your second question on your bulletin if you're following along. If Jaime and Alex were true believers, could they finally and ultimately fall away from the faith? Yes or no? No. No, they couldn't. So how do you explain what happened to these men? How do you explain it? Well, this is a difficult question to answer. And here is how I explain this. This is my best explanation, taking this passage and all of Scripture into account. What I think happened with Jaime and Alex and many others who we see walk away is that they are professors of Christ, but not possessors of Christ. They profess Jesus, but they do not really possess him in their hearts. They're like one of the seeds that we learned about just a few months ago in Luke that were sown and fell by the wayside and the birds snatched up or fell and the thorns choked them out. There wasn't true life in Jaime and Alex, even though even though these men are probably named out here by Paul because these were probably some of the men who were teaching the false doctrine. And yet, they walked away from the faith. And because Jaime and Alex rejected the faith and suffered shipwreck their faith, what does Paul do? Look what he does in verse 20. Among these are Jaime and Alex, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they would be taught not to blaspheme. What does Paul mean when he says he has handed them over to Satan? What does he mean? Well, Paul uses this this phrase, handed over to Satan, he uses it one other time in scripture that that I found in my study and it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, it's this context of this man, there's a man in this church in the church of Corinth and he was living in unrepentant sin. He was he was sleeping with his father's wife. And Paul comes and he interfere, in, interferes um, and, and, and interjects into this church. And, and what does he do? He says he's going to hand this man over to Satan. He's going to hand his, this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now what is he doing? Paul, in that passage, is removing this man from membership. What's happening? It's church discipline. This man is being, being excommunicated from the membership of the church. So when Paul says here that he has handed them over to Satan, Jaime and Alex, what is he doing? He is removing them from the membership 
of the church. Now, how could Paul do that? How could he hand these men over to Satan? This is not a trick question, right? How could he do it? He could only do it because they were members. Not regular attenders. They were members of the church of Ephesus. Since they were removed, it means that they are members of the church to begin with. He could not remove these men if they were just visitors. But I want you to notice how he, how he says this. How he describes removing them from the membership. Look again at verse 20. He says, Among these are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan. So, so, so what he's doing is he's removing them from the church. But why does he say that he's handing them over to Satan? Why does he say that? Well, he's saying that because, because here's the reality. Outside of the membership of the church is the realm of Satan. Outside of the membership of a local church is the realm of Satan. Elsewhere, Paul says that that Satan, the devil, is the prince of the power of the air. His realm, Satan's realm, if you were, is outside of, of the local church. And so outside of the local church, outside of the, the confines of the, of the membership of the body, you are in the realm of Satan. That is what Paul is saying here. He hands these men over to that realm, to the realm of Satan. And here is why this matters so much. It's this, this final question that you have on your sheet. Why does church memberships matter so much, especially for the perseverance of our faith? It matters so much because outside of the membership of the church is the realm of Satan. And in the realm of Satan, here is the key, you have no protection. That's the key. You have no protection that the church gives in its doctrines and its disciplines. It's why membership is so big. It's why we take it seriously here. Now, you might think to yourself, you know, Pastor Dan, I understand what you're saying, but I would never embrace false teaching. I would never teach something against God's word. I would never fall away from the faith. And if you think that, even just a little, I want to say with all love and respect, you don't understand the depravity of the human heart. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, I know that my heart is so capable of walking away from Jesus. It is. And your heart is too. No one... No one thinks that they're going to embrace or teach false doctrine and walk away from Jesus. 
No one says that. But it happens. It happens. And sometimes it happens slowly and it happens before you even realize it. And then you get to that place and then you don't even care anymore. You don't even care anymore. But let me tell you, this is the benefit and protection that the church provides. It's only, listen, it's only because Paul was able to remove these false teachers from the church because they were members of the church in the first place that, that provided them protection. Listen, we certainly, we certainly, I, I believe, and I hope you believe, and you know what, you sing it, you sing it when we sing the song, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. You sing that song, and I think you mean those words when you sing that song. But you can wander away from the faith. You can fall away from the faith at any age. It doesn't have to look like Josh Harris. It can be the slow, steady burn of a bad conscience. I've seen it. And you've seen it. And here's the thing. Lest, lest you think that Paul is negative, and I'm, I'm negative about this text um, and about church membership and, and church discipline, Paul handing these men over to Satan, unless you think this is negative, it's not at all. This is so hope-filled. Why? Because church discipline is redemptive and restorative. Church discipline is not punishment. When someone is removed from the church, the whole purpose is, is that they would come back. We want them to come back to the faith. It's corrective discipline. This is how Paul says, says what he says here at the end of verse 20. He says, Hymenius and, and Alexander, I've handed them over to Satan. Why? Why has he done this? So that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Paul's intent is not that they would be punished. It's that they would be restored. That they would learn. That they would be taught not to blaspheme. Certainly that was the problem with them. Right? That was the problem with Jaime and Alex. They were blaspheming God by teaching what was contrary to God's word. And Paul removes them. He removes them so that they were taught not to blaspheme. But again, think about this. Think about this. It's only because Jaime and Alex were removed. It's only because they were members of this church that they have a fighting chance. To come back. Because their error was exposed. It was pointed out. Paul told them in love. Remove these men. Show them their error. So that they come, come back to the faith. 
So what does this mean? What does all of this mean? All this means that, that as a Christian, you need to be a member of a local church. It doesn't have to be this local body. It, it, there are many, many local churches here in this area that you can be a member of. But you have to be a member of a local church. You can't just say, I'm not going to be a member. That's just not for me. You have to identify with a body. Why? Why? So that, so that you can have a fighting chance to persevere so that the church can be used as an instrument in your perseverance. All Christians must be a part of a local church. Yes, we are part of the universal church, but we must be a part of the local church. It's like the Babylonian bee I saw a few years ago. You ever read the Babylonian bee? They talk about a man who goes into a gym, right? And he hands his card to the gym worker, and on the card it says, I'm a member of the universal gym. (laughs) Say, wait a minute, you can't get in here. This is L.A. Fitness. No, no, I'm a member of the Universal Gym. He says, you don't understand, sir. This is for LA Fitness members. Right? It's the same thing. Right? We are to be members of a local body. Now, this, this message is not one that I wanted to preach. This is, the, this is the, the downfall of expository preaching when you have to preach verse by verse. You have to preach these hard and heavy messages. But listen, brothers and sisters, you know this. I think you know this. And I, I have been feeling this recently that, that the Christian life is not easy. Am I right? Following Jesus is hard. We must fight against the world, against the flesh, against the devil. And some of you, some of you are weary in this fight. You're weary right now in this fight. I want to say to you, brother, sister, I want you to hear, keep on fighting. And we don't do it alone. It's like Samwise Ganji told Frodo right when Frodo was about to give him the towel. Do you remember what he says? If you're fond of the movies or the books, he says, Mr. Frodo, I can't carry your burden, but I can carry you. I love that line because it's what the church is about. We have to individually fight the good fight. But we have our brothers and sisters around us to help carry us, as it were. And reflecting on all of this, my mind went to this old hymn that really sums up this message so very well. Am I a soldier of the cross? Listen to these words. The first three standards are just questions. Right? Just asking questions. Am I a soldier of the cross? A follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause? Or blush to speak his name? 
Must I be carried to skies, to the skies on flowery beds of ease? While others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me on to God? And then the songwriter says in the final stanza, Since I must fight, if I would reign, increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. Friends, we don't gather on Sunday morning because we like each other, although we do, by and large. (laughs) We do like each other. We don't primarily gather here on Sunday morning because that's what good Christians do. No, no, no. We gather here on Sunday morning because we are engaged in a fight for our souls. We really are in a fight for our souls. And I know that because we are called by God to fight the good fight. Christianity is no cruise control. Oh, how I wish it was. But it is no cruise control. And so when we gather here on Sunday mornings, you know what it does? You know what it does for me, honestly? You know what Sunday morning gatherings do for me? It helps me to fight the fight. Sunday mornings help me to wage the war. That's what it does. And so, brothers and sisters, may God, through the gospel of his powerful grace, may he persevere us to keep fighting the good fight by keeping faith and a good conscience in the context of this local church. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, 